I love genre movies. I love, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, directors who, who, whose work I admire, who I've named characters in the movie after. Um, and the movie, the script became kind of a hobo stew of just like, let's put this in, let's put that in. Um, but what, I, what I've learned in the years uh, since the movie is that I kind of, I kind of hit pay dirt by accident in terms of the tone because tone is always really important in movies and particularly in a horror comedy because sometimes it's real funny but it's not scary or sometimes it's scary and not particularly funny. For me, the best horror comedy ever is An American Werewolf in London because it has both, but it, it's also really grounded. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bombed theatrically and also the critics didn't give any love to. Bradster, uh, that is officially your name from now on. Um, we're still in spooky season. How's how's uh, October treating you? It's doing fantastic. Uh, I knocked another one off my list. I, I finally got around to watching Talk To Me. Oh, okay. I really enjoyed that. That is a good um, film. And then- and then my wife uh, hit me with a bomb uh, uh, that um, when she was growing up in her house, um, she had an imaginary friend who was not imaginary named the Red Man. And uh, it was a ghost. And uh, they had to have a medium come out to their house, the house that I've stayed in Wait, numerous what? times. Oh, hold on. B- back the truck up for a second. Your wife was friends with a ghost? She was friends with a ghost. His name was the Red Man. She a would tell her ghost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Red Man. Uh, uh, Method Man, not not around, but Red Man was there. Um, and uh, yeah, so they had to have a medium come out. And after the medium left, Natalie never mentioned the Red Man again to her mom. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. So uh, I had a, a horrible time sleeping the other night because I learned <laughs> that I've lived in, I've stayed in a house where a ghost has been, uh, apparently he was a nice ghost. He was an old man, um, who would just wanted to talk to Natalie. Wow. So my, my daughter at one of our houses, well, it was, we lived, we lived in your area, uh, out in Charlestown, uh, said that she had a ghost as a friend, um, and would play with her. So I, that's just crazy. Well, Hey, Let's let's introduce hey, our speaking, guest real quick. Speaking of ghosts. Speaking of ghosts, yeah. I, I grew up in Kentucky. No ghost. <laughs> well, if if you're familiar with that voice, it's our good friend Sammy from the Gentle, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Sammy, no ghosts. You you haven't had like a supernatural encounter at all in your lifetime? 
I would say I've never had a supernatural encounter. No. Okay. Uh, do you believe in ghosts? I do not. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. But you, but you like horror <laughs> movies. Into that conversation right it's there. It's like, and moving on. <laughs> okay. Hey, what about what, what about, about space slugs and zombies? Who, uh, <laughs> like, Sammy, we're doing a podcast. I don't believe in any of this. <laughs> what about uh, aliens? I, I mean, I've had scary experiences. Do I believe in aliens? Um, I don't know that I believe that aliens, Brad, have come to visit. I do believe that aliens are highly likely. What do you, but they're, they're releasing all this uh, documentation and video footage now that the government's been sitting on. They're, yeah, I did see the fossil. Now. Yeah, I did see the fossil. Yeah, the, the very lifelike looking fossil. <laughs> right. Troy, just because it's unidentified doesn't mean it's alien. Listen, Bradster, I've watched enough <laughs> films to know. Brad's, a, Brad's an asshole. We're not I've alone. A, I've had an unidentified growth on my back. I don't oh, know what it is. That's entirely Not different. alien. Now you're getting into body horror. That's Cronenberg territory. I do, though. Uh, I, I, I enjoy the supernatural as a story element. I've never experienced, although I will say that I have tried to experience the supernatural. Just never had a convincing moment. So like a Ouija board or yeah, did you like Ouija board? I've done the seance thing. I've tried that. I've done uh I've stayed in uh you know, I've uh cavorted about the Waverly uh asylum here in uh, Kentucky. And, that place is scary. Yeah, I've done Yeah, that yeah, place I've, scared the living shit out of me. Yep. I've done some things, but I've just never really had a I mean, I've had some very scary animal encounters. <laughs> oh, that's a whole different genre. <laughs> That's when animals attack. It is. But let me tell you, that genre's real. Oh, true, true. Yeah. I, I, I had a bum come after me one time. <laughs> yeah, bum yeah fights, that's some, a whole different yeah. genre. Uh, I, had some fem- uh, I had female encounters in my life. <laughs> well, Bradster, <laughs> what, what genre and what movie are we, are we talking about tonight? Oh, boy. We are doing Night of the Creeps, which I would say is a sci-fi horror comedy. I throw comedy in there. Mm-hmm. Um, written and directed by one Fred Decker. Um, it is from 1986. And do you remember who recommended this? Yes, this uh, is from Gary H. Recommended this for oh, us. Awesome. So we we picked Gary's name out of the hat or spun an electronic wheel and it produced this mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I'm no. I'm pretty excited. God I, bless that it did. Jesus H. Man. <laughs> yeah. So obviously yeah, yeah. all of you've us are John, familiar with you've this. Had, you've had Michael H. You've had John H. You've had Gary H. And Jesus H. <laughs> yes. <what> <laughs> True. So we we all own this film. We've all seen it before. Is that is that fair? Oh, uh, man, I have seen this movie so many times. It's um, I I couldn't even tell you how many times I've seen this film. Okay. Same for you, Brad. Stir. Oh yeah. Sorry, yep. Brad Stir. Brad Stir. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Brad Stir. And it's you... a tough watch for me, to be honest with you. Oh, it is. Okay. <laughs> and same... I mean, we'll in nineteen eighties, uh, only one name was synonymous with the douchebag asshole, and that was Brad. And every time I watch this movie, I'm reminded that my name is synonymous with an eighties asshole. Well, it it could have been like Chip. That would have been terrible. Right. Yeah, there was Chips, Brad's, Biff's, Biff's, Greg. There were some Gregs. Mm. Yeah. There what was go. the what was Johnny? Chet? Johnny. That, I was that's a say, karate mm-hmm. kid, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, Johnny. Chet from Weird Science could have been a Chet. Chet. Yeah. <laughs> Chet was kind of a a different level of bad Big Brother, though. 
almost like uh he's almost like you know if, you, if you're the if you're like chet's friend you're having a good time because he's pretty out there <laughs> that's true well bradster were were you in a fraternity as well i i was in a fraternity oh boy here we go okay seen a lot of similarities mm-hmm. um oh boy well hey uh let's let's get I'm into this famously blonde too troy oh i i know famously blonde has uh his uh, jeep has a convertible roof you didn't know that his jeep has a convertible roof i don't think so <laughs> he has a fake Jeep. So anyways, um, Bradster. Well, you know, real quick, Sammy, you you guys have covered this film before too, right? On your show? Yeah, this is always fun to kind of go back and talk about a film on another podcast because I'm always wondering if I go back and listen to something I talked about, if I don't double back on myself somehow. But you know what? Hey, time has gone by. Everything's everything. different. This Everything's is how you different. feel at yeah. this moment. Yeah. Yeah, this is how I feel tonight. Uh, the... Um, Will, my uh, podcasting compatriot, he's actually a huge fan of this one as well. And uh, it was just one we wanted to talk about. And uh, this movie, uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. I mean, I I basically have it memorized in so many ways. I've seen it so many times. Okay. I, I think it's fair to say, too, that it is a favorite among horror fans. And it's gotten a special edition treatment from, from Sony uh, a couple mm-hmm. of times on Blu-ray. But yeah. Brad, let's go back to 1986. Let's put all this in context, because even though Night of the Creeps um, is, is kind of well loved in the horror circles, that wasn't necessarily the case when this thing uh, kind of burst out onto the theaters, right? Or a couple of theaters. Uh, very, very true. Yes. So release August 22nd of 1986. You know, releasing a horror film in August always a smart idea uh, with an unknown budget. But the box office total was $591,000. I guarantee this movie costs more than a million dollars. So we can safely say five ninety one. dollars Right. Big bomb there. Um, <laughs> opening weekend, Troy and Sammy. It comes in 20th place. Now, to put that in context, it only opens in 70 theaters that weekend. It does not have a second weekend of release, so it gets about uh, 10 days in the theater. Oh, goodness. Wow. Um, so 20th place, and it makes $220,000, and it gets beat by films like The Fly, Ooh. Stand By Me, Aliens, mm. Top Gun, mm. and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 are your top five films of that weekend. That's what an amazing awesome weekend. Yeah. Top five. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this, this begets my argument that people always say, you know, there's a lot of franchise movies now. There's a lot of franchise movies then. Yeah. And there's a remake. And there's remakes. <laughs> the flies yeah. a remake. I mean, yeah. Top Gun's an original property in there, but yeah, I think everything else in there is either a remake or a franchise, right? I mean, Stand By Me is based on a book. So. Well, uh, Stephen King is a franchise. Yeah. Arguably. Yep. Oh yeah, for the '80s. I mean, you'd slap yeah. his name on a I, on a property. I'd say, and, yeah, yeah, I'd say forever. Actually, that's true. Not just <laughs> yeah. he is a franchise unto himself. Yeah, but interestingly enough, on Rotten Tomatoes, Night of the Creeps is a 73 with the critics and a 70 with the audience. That's with plus 10,000 reviews, which I hmm. find very interesting. Okay, that and. Is interesting. Lastly, films you could have seen August of 1986. We have quite the list. All right. I bet we, we have do. August 1st. You could have seen 
uh, night, uh, Friday the 13th, part six, Jason lives or Howard the duck. Oh, amazing. Both are solid choices. Yes. I saw both. I saw both. <laughs> August 8th. You could have seen, uh, a fine mess. One crazy summer. She's got to have it. Stand by me. Transformers. The movie banger weekend. Wow. August 15th. I, I saw, I saw one crazy summer twice. Wow. How's that for weird? That's mm. all right. <laughs> On August 15th, you could have seen armed and dangerous. The boy who could fly the fly manhunter. Oh, dang. Oh. Uh, August 22nd, you could have seen dead end drive in, which is, I just thought that was cool. Uh, extremities, uh, the peanut butter solution, the Texas chainsaw massacre two, And then on August 29th, you could have seen born American bullies in Shanghai surprise. Wow. August of 1986 was stacked. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hear that list and I get really excited about the, just the diversity of the film selection there. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure if you look at all a uh, particular weekend, not just the theaters, but you throw all the streaming in, maybe it's the same, but it doesn't feel like it in a, in a given month. Do, do you think that has to do with our age though? What do you mean? Man, we really, we really looked at that newspaper every week back in those days and looked at those releases. Didn't we? That's true. Um, like one of my favorite books that has recently come out is the ad nauseum books with the, uh, the horror newspaper, um, clips. Yeah. And it, it is really fun to go back and look at the newspaper ads from like the seventies and eighties, uh, and see what they were doing with the posters and how they were advertising different things. Mm-hmm. But, but again, I mean, between the theatrical release schedule, going to the video store, et cetera. Uh, there, there really was a lot to choose from. And again, um, I mean, how many new movies come out in a weekend anymore? It, not that many, and, and, I don't think. Well, what, I mean, I don't know for sure. I, I won't speak out of turn here because I don't have any data or anything to substantiate what I'm getting ready to say. <laughs> I feel like a lot of movies are released every week, but not a lot of movies in theaters. Well, that's what I'm saying. If, even if you throw in the streaming... Uh, does it still come out to like four or five new movies per week? If you, if you take the streaming and in the theaters, maybe, uh, maybe across all of them. And I'm not counting TV shows, like just, just film. Yeah. No, no, no. I got you. I got you. Are you talking about streaming? Are you talking about VOD? Oh yeah. I guess video on demand would be an entirely different beast too. Right. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, video on demand has taken the place of the straight to video release. True. Which became a huge part of, our childhoods, right? So it, it gets into some murky water there, but I, I see where I see the angle you're saying. Definitely. I mean, did anything release this past weekend or this weekend? Is anything releasing? I don't, ta- I don't Taylor know. Swift. Taylor Swift. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Nobody wanted to compete with her. Yeah. They, right. Everything moved out of the way because it yeah, made thanks. $96 million. Everybody's like, I'm out of here. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it that, that makes sense because even, even the video on demand, I don't know. Maybe it's just a profile thing. So to your point, everybody would scour the newspaper uh, to see what was playing in the movie theaters. And it it was just all in one place. Right. But between Mm -hmm. VOD theatrical and then what is exclusive to streaming, it's probably a little harder to get your film out there uh, into the general public. Right. Yeah. Here's what I'll definitely say about the modern era. Your film is out there. And if it doesn't grab people immediately, it's gone. Oh, that's true. It is more forgotten. so than it more so than it has ever been. 
I don't care what format you're on, Netflix, Amazon Prime. If your film does not grab an audience like two days in, poof, it's gone. Well, it's crazy. I was just reading something the other day that some of the movies that get released theatrically, then all of a sudden debut on Netflix for the first time or something of that nature, all of a sudden become water cooler talk and instant hits. And the latest one is Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge. I'm seeing so many posts about Hacksaw Ridge because now it's on Netflix. And uh, I yeah. feel like that movie just, you know, it it got its uh, nominations. Everybody kind of forgot about it. But all of a sudden, it's it showed up on Netflix recently. And it's, it's showing in a lot of uh, charts in terms of top streaming content. Yeah, that's interesting. That just tells you the, that just really kind of tells you the power of Netflix. Is really yeah. what that tells you. It'll be interesting to see, because we're going to get more data, because a part of the writer's strike stuff was a lot of a lot of having a third party be able to audit that stuff and a lot of residuals are now based on like if like 20 i forget like what the metrics are now but a lot of that information is going to be more public now because yeah. that's written in the uh writer's new um collective bar i don't know if it's collective bargaining or what they call it but whatever in their new deal um and so it'll be interesting to see what we get out of that and if we can see what a film like Hacksaw Ridge, what it does, whoops, it's been three or four years since its release. It finally comes out on Netflix. Does it get 15 million views in like a weekend or something? Like, is that ridiculous? I don't know. But like, it, I, I'll be curious to see what we what we learn from that and how big these films actually are. That's true. I mean, that's the contention of the actor strike, too, which they haven't come to an agreement on is releasing the data and then getting paid uh, mm -hmm. for how often it gets streamed as well. Uh, so any any other um, reviews or anything on, on this one, Brad? Uh, sadly, there's not. Oh, okay. Well, I saw Ridge seven years old. Seven? So, okay. okay. Jeez. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I, I did want to bring up, I also I think it's very interesting. We talk about this, how much different stuff gets released in just thinking about films from the eighties that I've seen, like I've seen night of the creeps, I don't know, 15, 20 times. And you just think about like, you know, we talk about, Oh, all these films get released. And then you're watching night of the creeps, you know, 20 times. Same. Well, you've probably seen it, but you know, yeah. So this is an interesting conversation. Uh, like all I don't the other know. movies I could have seen, but I've watched <laughs> Night of the creeps 20 times. I wonder sometimes and Troy, maybe you can relate to this, and I'll certainly be curious if Jose would, but I kind of know where Jose stands. I know we all love new films. There's no doubt about it. But I know a lot of us find ourselves watching older films, uh, maybe for the first time, which is like watching a new film. But I don't know what it is, as I've gotten older, that I go back to films and rewatch them. And, and, and maybe it's just my love of movies that makes me do that. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's doing the podcast. I don't know. I don't really know what it is, but I do find that interesting that new films really don't a lot of new films really don't get my motors running unless it's somebody like I really appreciate, like a Paul Thomas Anderson, a Quentin Tarantino, or even a James Cameron or Christopher Nolan, somebody like that. Most of the stuff really just doesn't get me super excited unless it's something with some kind of unique spin or something that just looks unique. Yeah, I. I think it is a little bit of a comfort food to go back and revisit things. And I think, I think as you get older, 
uh, and maybe even a bit more analytical. You pick up on things that maybe you didn't pick up on the first time you saw it when you're like 15 or something like that. I, I have found this trend with myself recently is I'll watch a film and it may be older. And then if it's part of a genre, uh, a good example is film noir right now. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to stick to just a, a horror heavy diet in October, but I've, I've seen some film noir kind of squeeze some of that in. And now I'm like, Oh, I want to, I want to stay in that time period, forties, uh, maybe the fifties and go see others that I haven't seen. So, uh, and, and to me, that is more interesting than any of the stuff that's coming out recently because they're, they're just, <laughs> there feels like this template that's going on with everything, especially I've seen in the theater that feels very much like, you know, um, regurgitated plots, storylines, like nothing original outside of some of the, the auteurs that maybe you've talked about. And so there's something about going back and, and watching a film from the 40s or 50s that feels fresh, if that makes sense, because no. it's it's just it's not a template that they're using today. Right. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the people who made this film. Um, I, I want to start. You've already mentioned this, Brad, Fred Decker. So he he directed and wrote this and he, he has a very interesting resume in that um, in terms of films. He's done Night of the Creeps in 86, The Monster Squad, and RoboCop 3. So those are the, the main films that he's directed. If you look at him from a screenplay perspective, it, it gets a little bit uh, longer in, in terms of movies that will show up on his resume. We've got Godzilla 1985, obviously released in 85. Uh, that same year, House, another horror, I think, classic from the 80s. We've got yeah, Night of the Creeps. Fun. Monster Squad. Uh, if looks could kill in '91, this fun little James Bond yeah. action film ripoff. Self-aware James Bond. Yeah. Self-aware. Mm -hmm. Was it Richard Grieco? Was that uh, yeah. who was in it? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, Richard Grieco. Yep. Same year, he does a screenplay for sort of a bonkers little thriller that I actually just watched recently, Ricochet with Denzel Washington, John Lithgow. <laughs> Yeah, Ricochet will be on this sh this show sooner rather than later. I, I, I think need so. to talk about Ricochet. I agree. Then we got RoboCop three in ninety three, uh, and then he also contributed uh, some screenwriting to 2018's The Predator. Now the reason for that is he is really good friends with Shane Black. Uh, they yeah. lived together at one particular point when they were kind of coming out. I think they were in film school and coming out of film school. So yeah. um, they they shared we're, an apartment with some some pretty famous people. Yeah, they went period. to uh, they went to UCLA together. Yeah, um, I believe they're UCLA. I guess what what I, what I want what I want to bring up here with Fred Decker is because I don't know how deep we'll talk about him in the, when we're talking about the film, but, but maybe we will. But I just want to get this up and out there now. You read off that resume, and really, it's just bomb after bomb. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it really is, and it's it's really kind of sad in a way. And remind me to kind of bring up. I think Decker may have been ahead of his time. And he may have been the sacrificial lamb for the for the self aware filmmakers that came after him. That's could, a, yep. yeah, I could see that. I, I would also yeah. say, like, is you you could say, and we I, I definitely with Night of the Creeps, Monster Squad, stuff like that. House they they may not have struck gold in the theatrical marketplace, but they certainly made a crap ton of money 
on VHS sales. I mean, that that's fair, right? Yeah, I think all of, yeah, I think almost everything he's, I mean, even me, I enjoyed If Looks Could Kill. I love that film. Uh, yeah, <laughs> as for what it is. Yeah. And I think minus, I that video. I think minus RoboCop 3, pretty clean slate. Yeah, RoboCop 3, there's a lot of stories behind the background of that one, though. Yeah, we'll talk about, about it. We will yeah. We will get to that. I, I feel like we're going to end up talking about all of his films. Monster Squad's getting another 4K release, along with the documentary Wolfman's Got Nards. Yep. Um, or Wolfman's Pretty Got Nards. Good. Yeah, so uh, he's, he's obviously found uh, the cult reputation with his filmography. I think we would all agree we love his resume. Is that is that fair? I think he's yeah. I think he's incredibly underrated. Okay, and I think he's one of actually. I think he's one of Hollywood's kind of. For me personally, he's kind of one of Hollywood's sad stories. Oh, why do you say that? I just wish he could have worked more. Okay, I mean, don't get me wrong. He gets some work. Shane Black's helping him out and everything else. That Predator reboot. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I know. I feel the same way. It's you know. It's definitely you look at something like prey and prey is like a thousand times better than. Yeah. Well, predator just didn't have the, it just, it should have worked. Shane black. Yeah. You know, good cast. It should have worked. It came off like a, uh, well, kind of like a frat boys idea of a predator movie, but (laughs) it's, uh, I, I just, I find his story for me. I'm not saying it's bad for him or maybe bad for fans, but I just, I always wished for, I just always wished he would have worked more. I wish he would have made more f- films. Yep. Agreed. Uh, there's a couple other names I just want to bring up when we talk about people behind the camera. First one, cinematography by Robert C. New. Really interesting resume. Lots of stuff on there. I thought you would appreciate this, Bradster. Uh, and, and you too, Sammy. So we've got, <laughs> we've got some stuff like Prom Night in 1980. So he lends that one. Uh, Night of the Creeps yep. in 86. Lionheart, Jean-Claude Van Damme in 1990. Hell yeah. You're, you're nice. going to love this, Brad. Galaxis in 1995. So he was a cinematographer on that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This is the title that jumped out at me. And this is how I know I have a problem. So there's a David Hasselhoff and Eric Tsang ninja film oh, called yeah, yeah, yeah. Dancing Ninja from 2010. And the minute that I found out that there was a Blu-ray, I had to order it. it. Yeah, I bought yep. it. Um, so there you go. Uh, makeup effect artists. So there's there's a bunch of names on the credits, but two stand out because we've talked about these folks before. The first one I want to bring up is Robert Kurtzman. I think we spent a little time yep. talking about him when we talked about Spawn uh, from 1997, as well as Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. I believe Sammy was on Spawn with us and yeah, Leatherface yeah. 3. Yeah. Or Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Leatherface. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I come around just for the KMB effects. There you go. <laughs> um, and Night of the Creeps is one of his earliest credits as makeup effects artist. And then the other one, which I thought was interesting, was David B. Miller. Now, for Night of the Creeps, he was credited as makeup effects artist and the Creeps design. But he's also uh, worked on two films that we've talked about. Both of them comedies, believe it or not, 1993's Coneheads and 1991's Nothing But Trouble. So Ooh. there you go. Yeah. A couple of names yeah, to pay David attention Miller. to. Is he designed the Dick Nose? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, David, David Miller. It's funny. I'm actually listening to a book about the uh, comedy actors of the 80s called Wild and Crazy Guys. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, they talked about David Miller right before we started recording this podcast. They talked about the makeup on, in Nothing But Trouble by David Miller. And then he comes up in this in this talk about a small world. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, cast wise. So we've got some, I guess, familiar faces. If you paid attention to, to the 80s, our mm. hero is Jason Lively as Chris Romero. Now, he's yeah. he's popped up in Brainstorm in 1983, which we talked about. He was the second Rusty, so he replaced the original Rusty. Um, he was the, he was the Rusty that saw boobs. That's right. Yeah, he was the Rusty that saw European boobs. boobs. The best European time. boobs. <laughs> German at that. Yeah, oh. he didn't he didn't act he didn't very talk. much. Yeah, he's only got. It was a Tittoberfest or something. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, Fraulein. <laughs> okay, sixteen acting credits. Not not a lot there, right? Um, we get Steve Marshall as James Carpenter Hooper. I don't know if you're picking up on this. All the characters' names are famous directors. There you go. Uh, this, yeah. this is his first film role as well. Again, not a lot of acting credits. Nine according to IMDb. I think mm-hmm. the person we're all kind of excited to talk about is Tom Atkins as Detective Ray Cameron. Um, right around this time period. So we've talked about him on Halloween 3. That came out in 82. He was doing the new kids in 85, lots of TV in 85, 86 does night of the creeps in 86 follows that up with a little part in a movie called lethal weapon in 87. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and the last one that I think is, as part of the main cast is Jill Whitlow as Cynthia Cronenberg. Uh, you yeah. might know her from Porky's in 1981 mask yeah. in 85. She was also in weird science in 85 before she went on to night of the creeps in 86. And yeah, just she's pretty girl. Yeah, Very pretty. Just, just give you a little taste of some other names you'll find. Wally Taylor's Detective Landis, Bruce Solomon as Sergeant Ramey, J. Arlen Jones as Officer Craven, and Elizabeth Alda as Officer Bala. Is that right? Did I say that right? Baba. Baba. I got a typo. Yeah, and I typed it too. Isn't that crazy? Um oh, I thought it was the red man zombie coming to get you. <laughs> you were saying Bala. Bala. Uh just hey, Tom Atkins. Would I is he probably the most known out of this cast? Outside of a little the genre cameo wise, that shows yeah, up? I, I would I would think so. I mean, he's a three timer on this one. He's been in the ninth configuration and Halloween three season of the witch. So Night of the Creeps makes this his third episode for us. Yeah, um, oddly, I'd say David uh, uh David Pamer or whatever is the biggest actor to come out of this film. Oh, we have this, this yeah. That's true. The, uh, guy that ended up in uh, City Slickers and some other stuff with uh, Billy Crystal. Yeah. But yeah. like genre wise, I mean oh, Tom genre. Atkins, he's is, a he's a, he's a legend. Yeah, Maniac Cop. I mean, just all sorts of stuff, right? I mean, he's fantastic. Agreed. Still does <laughs> the circuit too, right? Because I think we saw him at Horror Hound not too long ago. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, Drive Angry was that the Nicolas Cage film that mm-hmm. came out yeah. that he had a part in, and uh, I think that's when I met him and had him uh, do an autograph for me. But heck of a guy to talk to. I got to tell you, he's, he's one of those that sincerely loves his fans and will talk your ear off, which is um, exactly the kind of experience you want from somebody like that. Mm-hmm. I, I I would say, I mean, is 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 there a Tom Atkins that works today? Hmm. I mean, if you think about it, and I think we talked about this in Halloween three, this is not the guy you expect to be like the big tough action hero of a film or your lead character. 
and he carries it. He carries it off with such charisma and charm. And I'm I'm trying to think: is there a 2023 equivalent of a Tom Atkins? Nothing comes to mind immediately. Nothing comes to mind immediately either for me. But there's bound to be somebody I'd imagine, but it's not ringing any bells. Yeah, listeners, if you have a Tom Atkins equivalent that's out there 2023 right now, I would love to hear your opinion on it. Would it? Mm, would it be somebody I mean, like Michael Rooker? But he doesn't do enough horror. And really, so, Michael Rooker. Michael Rooker's kind of working around the same time. Really, in a lot of ways, he was younger, just a little bit younger. But yeah, yeah. And that that's not the same thing. I thought about Bruce Campbell for a minute, but Bruce Campbell's working mm. around the same time as well. Yeah, Tom, Tom Atkins just has this untraditional kind of man's man look to him. And uh, yeah, how, he's kind of like a Ron Perlman in a way. Yeah, I guess Ron Perlman might yeah, be that, the equivalent. That might be a good, that might be a good example. Ron Perlman's a pretty good example. Okay. Yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting actor. Uh, he, you know, he he's the definition of a cult actor, and probably one of the more successful ones as far as quality of work. I mean, he's got a handful of films that are unforgettable. I, you know, he I agree. With John Carpenter and. And then did Halloween three and he's had these characters. He's always brought these kind of weird kind of like trivialities to life and with these characters he has. Maybe none more so than this character of Ray Cameron. Yeah, um, I he's always he, playing uh I think <laughs> he's he's always bringing his personality to the characters, but he adds a little bit of a nuance to where they feel different and it doesn't just feel like Atkins like He's playing Tom Atkins. It's yes, that's Tom Atkins. He has the Tom Atkins quality in his role, but in every role, there's something a little bit different or unique about it. Yeah. 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 Um, well, let's talk about production and development real quick. I'm not honestly, I, I'm just going to promote the Blu-ray. So there is like this hour long documentary. I think that you can yep. find on the Blu-ray. It's called thrill me making night of the creeps. It's a five-part documentary that pretty much chronicles the film evolution from its origin all the way to you know recent screenings that they did with fans and and uh, you know Decker and some of the actors. But what's interesting about it too is you will also get a chance to see both endings to the film. So if you watch this, uh, I think streaming is going to use the director's cut because that's what the Blu-ray presents, mm-hmm. and the theatrical cut is just an extra scene now, right? So in the mm-hmm. theatrical version, the dog, the little zombie dog who caused the bust accident, returns and approaches Cynthia. And as Cynthia bends down towards the dog, the dog open its, opens its mouth and a slug jumps out towards her. And that's how the film ends. That's what happened in the theatrical cut. Director's cut is a little bit more complex. So the original ending, and the one you'll see uh, if you're watching the Blu-ray or streaming, Um, Shows Chris and Cynthia standing in front of a burning sorority house with the camera moving to the street where police cars race towards the burning building. The police cars race by the charred and zombified Cameron, Tom Atkins, who is shuffling down the street, still smoking a cigarette. When he suddenly stops and falls to the ground, his head then bursts open with the slugs that incubated inside his brain, scamper out and slither towards a nearby cemetery, suggesting the slugs have found new host to inhabit. Searchlights appear from the night sky, revealing the source to be a spaceship from the beginning of the film with the aliens intending to retrieve their experiment. So I think the director's cut adds um, a little bit happier ending, I guess you could say, versus the theatrical cut. Is that fair? Somewhat. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
Do you guys have a preference over the endings? Do you do you like the new one over? Hey, we should have said we were going to spoil this thing, but I mean, come on. It's from 1986. I, I think everybody's seen this one that's listening to the podcast, but do you, do you have like, a preference yeah. over uh, one ending to the other? I, I like never. The, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I like the director's cut ending personally. And I had never seen the other, the one that's not in the actual theatrical cut. Um, I'd never seen the dog one. Oh, you hadn't? So okay. I, yeah, that was the one I always remember. Until I got the Scream Factory one, so or the Shout Factory. Was it Shout Whatever Factory? Was. I thought it was Sony that released it. The Shout Factory that I have that has the... There's Shout the Factory put it out and Sony put it one out. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that's right. They both have the they both have the documentary. Okay, yeah. cool. Okay. Yeah. I, I think Sony put the one out. Troy, probably the one you and I have might be the Sony one because it came out pretty early in the Blu-ray run. And uh, then I think it went out of print, and I think Shout Factory picked it back up and put it back out there. Okay, yeah, I I like the director's cut only because I think it's cool to see um, these elaborate models and set pieces, and I I like that whole I, I don't know I like the bookend of how this is set up where it starts with the aliens and ends with the aliens. Yeah, yeah, and I I think it's a pretty like cool that. callback um, to something. But I like that too, but I also like I love it's. This is going to sound so stupid, but I, I love the quaintness of the uh lighting effects on the graveyard <laughs> yeah oh. i think they're so cool they're the so miniature sim- yeah they're so simple but they look so cool oh i agree yeah there, there's something about running a- across these 70s or 80s films when you get good miniature effects mm-hmm. and uh man you, you i'm not gonna sit here and do the old man get off my yawn thing get off my <laughs> lawn with the cgi but there, there's just an art form to those miniature effects that i will yeah. always appreciate Gives uh, me a escape from New York, Bob. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will dive into Night of the Creeps and see how our upteenth viewing went. So stay tuned. They're at the movies. It's the big date. They love their popcorn. Look what they ate. This kind of action the main attraction. Oh, boy, ain't love grand. He's buying lots. Ice cream, Pepsi, and peanuts, too. Living on love's not easy. You need your strength to woo. Now he returns. What's this she yearns? Refreshing Pepsi, a kiss he earns. Romance and pleasure, and for good measure, thirst-quenching Pepsi. For those who think young. All right, are we ready for this conference now? We've got to name the new blob picture. Carol Lindley, Godfrey Cambridge, and Shelley Berman are in it. Is it the same old blobby red Vaseline stuff that eats people and spits out the clothes? Yeah, that's it. So what do we call it? The same old blobby red Vaseline stuff that eats people and spits out How about bless the beast in the blob? I just love it. Fiddler on the blob. Gidget meets the blob. Guess the blob's age and <laughs> win your life. Blob squad. Oh, the blob's a slob. Beyond the valley of the planet of the blob. Whatever the happens thing to be. Happen on the way to the blob. The blob father. Golly gee, kids. Be the first in your neighborhood to have your own name the blob picture contest. Son of Blob has already been taken. Oh, yeah, the first prize is one week in Burbank. Second prize, two weeks in lovely downtown Burbank. Son of Blob rated GP. Because everyone gets killed with their clothes on.
And we're back. Bradster, I want to start with you and uh, get your thoughts on Night of the Creeps. How how did your viewing go? Just to get it out there, I, I absolutely love this movie. Everything about it is my jam. Uh, watching it this time still brings a smile to my face. Uh, the Within the first five minutes of this film, we're on an alien ship. Uh, they're talking their gleep glop language to each other. They shoot something down to planet Earth. Uh, and then we realize that we're in 1959. It's black and white. Um, someone gets murdered with an axe. It's a bonkers way to start a film. Um, and then we flash forward uh, to the 80s and uh, we're all 80s out. And I, I just have so much joy watching this. Um, these B movies... They have to walk a tightrope. Um, there's got to be an earnestness to them. There's got to be efforts. But this one has like a lot of grand ideas and really goes for it. I mean, we are destroying so many mannequins. Um, we are <laughs> catching things on fire. Um, you know, we have an evil villain named Brad. Um, all those things. I just I just found this find this movie like so rewatchable in, in even though I've seen it so many times throwing it on it's 95 minutes. It's what you want from a film like this. It is not trying to do anything um, out of its weight class. It is, it totally knows exactly what it, what it's doing. Um, it's like, but like there are moments, character moments in this as well. Like I don't want to just like push this off to the side and say like, there's, nothing really here it's just a fun film like there are some flourishes in it i think the two friends have a nice relationship um when the one guy dies and he goes down to the boiler room to see him i mean you could tell like he's upset by it um you know does the relationship between uh what's her name and and our, our guy does it fully work i don't know like chris seems okay but like cynthia is i mean she's pretty smoking in this movie and she seems into him immediately for some reason um do you do you buy that relationship i don't okay. i, I don't <laughs> I just... um but you know it, it it works for the film so she belongs um, with the bradster she definitely belongs with bradster um okay. any any guy named brad she should she should be with um but i mean critically like i don't know i think this movie's pretty like critic proof in a way like i i like when you come to a film called night of the creeps and you have like these ginger dead man-esque puppets at the very beginning of your film you know exactly what you're getting and they hit it out of the park every time with these stupid little moments um you know the guy answers the phone he says thrill me all the time um sure like the director name for character names is kind of stupid but i mean does that really affect the quality of the film no um, you know, I could, I could imagine some, if we were in the theater in 1986 together, we'd be like elbowing each other in the ribs. Like, Hey, Hey, see, that's, that's Cronenberg. That's the, you know, like whatever. <laughs> I'm sure people got a kick out of that stuff, but I, I really, I really love, love this. And like, again, I've seen it countless times. And even today, I just turned it on again to watch like the last 20 minutes because I think it's great. As soon as that dumbass mannequin crashes that bus, 
I'm like, this is the greatest 20 minutes in film. So, um, yeah, I did, I, I, are, I like are you talking about that scene where the bus driver, there's like this yeah. weird shot where it looks like his eyes are popping, They're popping out of his, out head. Of his head. Yeah. Yeah. It I had to freeze into frame that for a second. Yeah. I had to freeze frame that just to see if, uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to see that all in all its glory. Cause it's pretty cool. But I am going to start a petition uh, going forward to uh, vindicate all Brads from being douchebags in films. It it just really bothers me. Well, I, have know? we had one recently, or is it just the eighties? Like, did you guys oh, just it's have always, a bad run the in the eighties? Okay, it's always the eighties. Yeah, I don't Any know what you could do watched, about that. I know. I mean, we're going like I want the Spielberg cut where you know in ET he takes out the guns and they're walkie talkies. I want to take out all the douchebag Brads and turn them into another name. <laughs> So look, you guys, you guys just, uh, I don't know what was wrong with you in the eighties, but you corrected uh, it. You're fine now. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this film, Troy. Okay. Sammy. I've seen this movie way too much. This is one of the ones that, uh, I was always, we talked about it on our show. Uh, the gentleman's got to midnight cinema and, it's a great uh, show. recommend it. <laughs> Yeah. We we talked about it and I remember even being nervous about talking about it. Cause I was like, I don't know what I'm going to be able to say about it. I mean, I love it too much. So, I mean, we found some things. I can't remember what any of them are now because I'm old. But I'll, I'll say this. The movie is, for me, as close to perfect of a as, of a B movie mixing genres as you can get. I mean, it's taking horror. It's got a little bit of sci-fi. I'm never really, I mean, if you really want to sit down to it on a critical level, I'm never really sure why the one alien is flushing the other little things out of the space thing oh in the canister at the beginning yeah he's a traitor yeah. yeah i mean that's all we can really kind of justify for that i mean and obviously it's a plot point i mean it moves our it gets our I story mean, the going. alien cusses at him it's great yeah <laughs> yeah so i mean you know you could you could pick apart the story and stuff but what i love about the movie is it was one of the first times that I remember seeing a film and I would have been 13 or 14 years old when I saw this, I didn't see it in the theater. So I saw it in VHS and it would have been very early in the VHS cycle, but it's one of the first times that I remember seeing a film and thinking this guy really loves movies as much as I do. Oh, you're, you're talking about him Fred as Decker. Fred Decker. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about Fred Decker. Okay. Yeah. This was the first time, uh, there had been guys before, I mean, obviously, you can make the argument Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola and all these guys, but my film knowledge was not that vast yet. I didn't, you know, I didn't deep dive into Kurosawa yet and and all that kind of stuff and Desika and yada yada yada. My film knowledge was mostly, you know, generated by uh, you know what I was watching at the time because I was a young man, my son's age right now, thirteen. So I would have been seeing, you know, the ETs and the Star Wars. And the, uh, you know, those films and that would have, that would have been the gateway drug for everything that I would have gotten into. But Fred Decker was the first time when I realized like, wait a minute, somebody else knows who Sam Raimi is. <laughs> I didn't think anybody knew who Sam Raimi was, you know, I, for the longest time, the world was so small to me that I didn't think anybody else had ever seen evil dead too, except me. And I remember that. I remember me and my brother, we, we show that we recorded it off cable TV and we'd show it to everybody that would come to our house. And yeah. we'd show it over and over and over again. And we just blew people's minds over and over and over again. And I'm not saying we're the reason people love Evil Dead, too. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I never really thought about that stuff 
as much and this kind of culture around the movies as much until I started seeing stuff like this and, you know, Evil Dead 2 and trying to think of some other stuff. Well, even American Werewolf in London in some ways. Uh, that was kind of a, you know, John Landis maybe is maybe the one I can think of that kind of reminds me of Fred Decker a little bit. Yes. I, I would bit. definitely say that. I, th- I think yeah. there's something about the 80s that produced these filmmakers who were very comfortable about um, sharing their, their source material right on screen or their inspiration, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah, yeah. So it's, it was funny to for me. For you guys, it's the 80s. For me, it's the 90s. And like yeah, people like but, Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Yeah, but it's funny to me that those guys, Smith and Tarantino, they got criticized so heavily. And I'm sitting there thinking the people that are criticizing these guys love the guys before these guys. Yeah. And you could even argue that the biggest film nerd of all time, Martin Scorsese, has been doing this since the late 60s. The second biggest film nerd I can think of off the top of my head, one like Brian De Palma, he's been doing this since the late 60s. Filmmaking is has developed and evolved from guys growing up watching films. And the more access they've had to these films, the more talented these filmmakers have become. Um, you know, those, the movie brats, quote unquote, Spielberg, De Palma, Scorsese, Lucas, these guys, they saw most of their films in college because they had access to them. A lot of, a lot of us, we didn't have access to that. We didn't get access until cable TV kind of changed the game. And then of course, VHS changed the game big time. Decker and Shane Black would have went to school in the seventies, probably late seventies, early eighties. So they would have had some access to some things that we wouldn't have been able to see. Um, but of course, VHS changed everything for me personally. And this was the, this was one of those movies that it just made me realize that that people do this for a living, not just because they want to make money, but because they actually love the art form. And that was kind of an eye opener for me. And, um, uh, I've been, I've appreciated this film ever since because of that. Not only saying that, I love the idea. Let me get into the film a little bit proper. I love the idea of opening it with like a, what is it, about five to eight minute black and white sequence? Yeah. Well, it's a color, it's a color sequence, then it's a black and white sequence, which is kind of brave, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cause they did the aliens first and then it's 1959. And then it goes black and white. And then it flashes forward again. Uh-huh. Right. It's playing with dream logic a little bit, which is kind of fun. The Tom Atkins dreams are kind of weird and fun. Oh, yep. They're kind of interesting. So he's kind of throwing everything in there. And you you can see all these different filmmakers kind of coming to the forefront. Romero, who often gets overlooked in the movie Brett thing because he wasn't part of that. He was an independent kind of local filmmaker. Right. But he was a filmmaker of the 70s, right? And you you can see all these things kind of coming to fruition with uh Decker and where his where he would absorb these things. And of course I've read lots of interviews of Fred Decker. I'm a huge Fred Decker fan. I like to hear him talk about movies. He's an encyclopedia of movie knowledge. He is, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, you see him in an interview, he's Quentin Tarantino before Quentin Tarantino. He's he's a guy like that. And you know, he when you hear him talk and then you watch his films, you're like, "Ah, I see. I see where all this stuff comes from. And Monster Squad after this is the same thing. I mean, it has the same vibe to me. A little bit more innocent. This one has to check some boxes. You know, it's got some some breast in here. The obligatory uh, breast shot. Uh, obviously, it's playing with sex and fraternities, which was really huge in this era. 
Um, no rape in this, which is which is nice as well too. No, yeah, no rape. Uh, <laughs> the way you I mean, said that like, for hold on, Brad. The way you said that, you're like no rape. Like you're yeah, almost no disappointed. Rape. No, I'm not disappointed. <laughs> it just it this one holds up better than some of those other ones. Oh, it does. I I do want to go back to this comparison with Decker and Tarantino, Scorsese, all the other stuff. I I've always felt, and you you bring up Kevin Smith. Mm. I mean, has has Kevin Smith tried? to make a film that was close to the films that he loves or does he just create characters who are ingrained in the pop culture and reference it? Like uh, what was, was the cop out? Was that the one he did with Bruce Willis? I mean, that's yes. him trying to recreate the eighties detective action comedy, mm-hmm. but the rest of his movies really are just characters referencing other pop culture moments. Right. Uh, he's got one-offs like red States um, doesn't really yeah. live in his universe much. Tusk, I think is another one that doesn't as well, but yeah, I mean like Jersey girl. I think that might be in the VSQ universe as well. Yeah. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, so take Tarantino for an example, when he produces a film, kill Bill's a great example. You know, the source material he's pulling from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right. he will take right. those actors, actresses, um, scenes, and and bring those to the forefront. Decker is definitely doing that within this film. Um, I think Scorsese plays around with that on occasion, but this this feels like a lost art to to be quite honest. Well, that, I think Scorsese is on a whole other level when he, it he comes is, to yes. representation of film history in his movies. Yeah. He is curbing from things and taking things from things, but he truly is a cinematic filter. Right. He's a guy who's absorbed all these things and they just kind of regurgitate out. I'm not saying he's never ripped anybody off. I'm sure he probably has, uh, you know, all great artists steal, right? But um, Tarantino's always worn his on his sleeve. Smith is interesting to me. It's interesting you bring him up because I've always had this theory. You know, Kevin Smith kind of reminds me of a much lesser. And I'm not going to go too deep into this because of so-and-so's reputation nowadays, but he's kind of like a weird kind of Woody Allen derivative in some kind of way, but pop culture Woody Allen. Yes. I, I've always felt that. Like, I, I actually yeah. think Clerks is just, <laughs> it is a, um, it's a variation of a Woody Allen film, to be quite yeah, honest. Because Woody Allen films all kind of exist in a Woody Allen kind of universe. They have the Woody Allen. Obviously, that girl and, in the Woody Allen film has sex with the dead guy in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, no, seriously, the it's interesting these filmmakers, and again, I, I'm always whenever somebody immediately comes out and calls a filmmaker a hack or a ripoff artist or anything like that, it always bothers me because there really hasn't been very many original filmmakers for a long time. Well, is uh, it because we know now we have so much more? I think it knowledge is, I think it, and we can. Like when we can access it, we can access it all the time. Yeah. In 1998, when Tarantino was talking about the Kung Fu films that, you know, influenced him, most people didn't have access to that stuff and they didn't know. But when you see it and then you see what he does with it, you're like, oh, he's stealing this shot. He's stealing that shot. And then it makes it feel lesser yeah, um, you, when there's you still to- an art form to compositing all that stuff together. Yeah. You have to be of that generation and i'm sure tarantino because he worked in a video store and whatnot troy and i 
you know, buying bootleg tapes, you know, you have to be of that generation that was really kind of doing that kind of thing and really kind of pursuing that kind of knowledge. And now, you know, my son can access pretty much anything, you know, he can access Fulci zombie, which is something I had to, I had to snail mail a guy in Japan for a laser disc copy of, Oh my God. I I remember I sent a money order to a guy one time for something. (laughs) I remember video search of Miami, which you would get this, this catalog of VHS rips and then send off a check or something. And you would just get basically uh nondescript VHS tapes with, with yeah. a tag on there and somebody like to get something back. Yeah. <laughs> somebody would just take a typewriter and go, well, this is zombie or this is Zatuichi. I mean, I still have all those tapes. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, honestly, they could have, they could have given you nightmare city. Yeah, or they could have given you anything, and you would and put zombie on it. And there was so little film knowledge. There was only a few magazines, and there was no internet and everything else. You really had to do your research. You could have been like, "Oh man, I've seen zombie. That's the one that has the roller coaster death at the end." And everything else, <laughs> people were like, "No, you moron! That's Nightmare City. What are you talking about?" So it was just a really weird time that you had to actually pursue these things. And I guarantee you, Fred Decker, Shane Black, these guys—they—they—they're the kind of guys. Because Shane Black's another guy. I know he's had some controversy recently and everything as well, but um, he's a he's a film nerd. He's he's a film nerd of his generation who knows a ton about movies. And these guys, they were really the kind of the beginning. They were right before the VHS boom, really, right yeah. before the Tarantinos and the Kevin Smiths and these guys. Even though you know those those guys are kids and they're growing up around this time, uh, these guys were just right before them. And it is interesting. And, and now that I think about it, because I was listening to that book, I've been listening to the Wild and Crazy Guys book, the John Landis conversations. Landis was that guy, too, because Landis kind of was that first filmmaker. I thought to myself, man, he just rattles off so many things. If you ever seen an interview with John Landis, he just first of all, he always he's always selling himself. But second of all, he's always rattling off all these movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And you're like, Jesus Christ, I've never even heard of these movies. Well, yeah, any any time there was a Universal Monsters documentary, John Landis was always there because he was just like the modern expert of it that was working yeah. in the industry, right? Yeah, and this film, to me, to kind of get back to Night of the Creeps and get away from that conversation, this is kind of the culmination of the beginnings of this kind of retro film love that became a huge part of my life and is still carried on. I mean, I do a podcast uh, about movies, and, uh, you know, I never made movies or anything else, but this film, this love of film has carried on. And this was kind of what this one and monster squad, not RoboCop three, but this, the, <laughs> those two, uh, they were eye openers that there was this culture coming up of film nerds, film lovers, and they were going to get to start making movies. And really in a lot of ways, Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, Spike Lee, who was kind of making movies around this time. He, well, he is making movies around this time. Brad yeah. mentioned That's right. this year. He, he, she's got to have it. Mm-hmm. I didn't see she's got to have it for the record. It was, uh, I believe it originally might've been released as an X even. I can't remember, but I remember Scorsese talking about it and uh, Spike Lee being a name and everything else. But these guys are now, these guys are right on the cusp of coming out and those guys changed movies. I mean, they changed the modern, you know, the nineties that, you know, some people give it grief, but that independent cinema movement of the '90s was huge and very important. And I, uh, yeah, this was just a kind of beginning of that. But I, I the movie still. Have, 
Yeah, I, I do have a question, though. So, I mean, we're talking about everything that Fred Decker references within this film and that he does in Monster Squad. And today we're sitting here and saying, oh, we love it, right? It's brilliant. But you you run across so many other auteurs who do the same thing, and maybe it doesn't work. I mean, I, I, I can't – I'll give you a great example. We're to the point now where we ingest in, in so much media, et cetera, that um, the recycle phase, I, I think it's coming faster than I thought. Just had a chance to see the new Exorcist film, Exorcist Believer. Uh, piece of crap. So don't, you know, I took one for the team. There you go. You don't have to see it. However, I, I was shocked. And, and Cameron and I both just kind of looked at ourselves when the scene occurred. And there is flat out a replication of an insidious scene. The, the famous insidious scene where the, the red demon shows up behind somebody's shoulder. Um, while the scene is going on, it's supposed to be this jump scare. It is a, there is a shot for shot. I mean, David Gordon Green does something that is right out of Insidious. And wow. the, the Exorcist Believer, you could look at that film and you could say David Gordon Green uh, is, is heavily borrowing from other films, most notably Insidious. And for me, it, it doesn't work. But somebody like Fred Decker, now David Gordon Green doesn't name any characters from Insidious or reference, you know, um, yeah. the directors or anything of that nature, but here Decker's just putting that all out there. I mean, he's, he's not, he's, he's not just, uh, lifting from other source material. He's like, well, I'm just going to play it in the background while I lift from yeah. that source material. Why does that work more so than other people who pay homage, um, to that or, uh, try to do the same thing, but unsuccessfully, like what, what, what is Decker's secret sauce that makes it work for his films? Well, to, to borrow a phrase, uh, history is is written by the winners, and and cinemas like that too. Good, like we give good films or films that we like so much of a pass. Someone who hates Night of the Creeps can look at all those names of those characters and say that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But for us, since Night of the Creeps is an amazing film, we just brush it off. But just, and so if someone who likes the new exorcist film, which I haven't met a single person who does, but say that they do, that probably doesn't bother them as much, but because we are willing to give so much slack to things that we like, we will go to bat for, for shit that might be really terrible that we like. Um, but if we don't like it, that stuff stands out even more. It, like it gets, it gets multiplied if you don't like something. Okay. I'll take it to a different route. I agree with Brad, but I'll take another route too. Think of the two successful Fred Decker films. They're not super original. They're really just a teenage boobs and blood film and a, a monster kid film. Mm-hmm. That's all they are. Universal monster kid film. Right. When you say successful, what do you mean? Like they, they hold up or, or like well, what, I'm, probably what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is he takes the tropes. And he amplifies them just enough, but he keeps the stories intact. The thing about Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad that works is both of the stories are good. True. That's the reason yeah. why that's the reason why I can overlook Detective Ramey and Detective, you know, or Cindy's Cronenberg and everything else. I I mean, obviously I hear that every time I see the film and I think it's kind of cute, but I never even think about it. I, someone always- could someone could write off 
right off like Monster Squad and say, well, it's just Goonies with monsters. Yeah, but I think, yeah, I agree. But I and it, they're not wrong. It is kind of Goonies. I mean, it's even got the same mom from Goonies. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're not completely wrong. Um, and for the record, I, I think I'm more of a Goonies guy than a Monster Squad guy, ultimately. But I don't even know why I felt the need to say that. Come I'm on, with you. you. Goonies is better. Get but uh, Goonies is just Goonies. But I'm um, a descent, but go ahead. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think that, you know, these movies, the stories are really good, though. I think they work. Um, I think the friendship between the uh, the uh, the kid with the handicap and, and the lead here. I can't think of their name. Sorry, off the top of my head. Chris um, and what's Chris and something? Chris and James. JC. James, I think. yes. I yeah. think JC. Yeah, the, the, I think that their friendship is very important to the movie. I don't really, again, buy the relationship that much, but at least it's kind of cool. But not only that, it's kind of playing with things. So I think of things in, if you think of things in derivative, think of something like Boondock Saints, which is quote unquote, you know, it's do like, I, do I have to? It's, you don't <laughs> I, have I to. Try to. I try it, to think about that. Movie. It's basically a riff on like Hong Kong action films, right? Yeah. But it's a bad riff on Hong Kong action films. But he's trying to do the same thing, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. And the reason why it doesn't work is because the story's not good. The, the story's not good. The action's okay. I'll admit that. I There's bet if you showed Boondock Saints to Landon, he would think it's one of the best movies he's ever seen. Maybe. Maybe. And there might be a whole generation. There might be a whole there Boondock is, There is a uh, following of that film, which is I used to be. Too. I used to be a Boondock Saint. I, yeah. I promise yeah. you, when I was 14 Look, years old. Yeah, I don't judge anybody for liking what they like. I, I'm not a Boondock Saint guy, but I understand why Boondock Saints has the following it has. I understand. But that is an example of me of taking a genre and doing it incorrectly as an homage. Whereas these two films are an example of doing it correctly. And I think it's because he treats the material. There's no, I never feel like with those two films, this film included, since we're mostly talking about this film and since we've gotten way off the topic of the movie itself, <laughs> I never feel like he's really winking at the audience. I, maybe you guys do, but I never feel like there's a wink, I, wink, nudge, nudge going on. I don't. I don't think so. I think. I think he's fully committed to the world he's kind of built on screen, and he treats yeah. it all with with a reverence. and And I think he he understands the source material. So you talk about um, let's take Decker and Tarantino for an example. When when they when they say, "Hey, I'm going down this genre, or I'm going to borrow from this source material." They they know exactly, I think, the ingredients that make that source material successful. Unlike, since you know, I brought up The Exorcist Believer, say what you will about David Gordon Green and trying to take a franchise into a different direction. I appreciate that. I love it. But if you're going to take something like The Exorcist, you have to understand what made the original film so good. And I think all of the sequels have kind of missed the mark to a certain extent, maybe except uh, Schrader. Maybe his version kind of tries to tap into it a little bit. With, with, with the minion, yeah. Yeah, because the, the, the idea of the exorcist is it's, it's not about the exorcisms. If, if it were, they would have called it exorcisms, right? But it's, it's really about Jason Miller and, and his faith and religion and the exorcist. And that entire world is based on that question and that uh, that very interesting question about like what would happen if a priest who was starting to lose his faith has to 
to go in and perform an exorcism to save a little girl. Like that's an interesting premise. And I think a lot of people concentrate on the wow factor that the exorcist brought to the table and all the shock value and try to recreate that and miss the point of what made that original so good. I think Decker. Yeah, there's like, it's like the person who walked out of the film of the exorcist was like, yeah, she says your mother's going to suck, suck cocks in hell. And that's what they took from it. And you're like, well, there's way more to it than just that. Oh, exactly. And I I think Decker is an, you know, Landis too. Um, and Tarantino, I think what makes them work is kind of what Sammy's talking about is the stories are good because they understand the ingredient of the story that's working and, and not just gravitating to one piece of it and taking it out of context and trying to lean in on that. Um, I mean, Reservoir Dogs works really well because I think Tarantino understood Hong Kong cop cinema of that time period, along with European cop cinema and tried to do something very unique with that story for that time period. But he understood the ingredients that made something like city on fire. So good. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and also he understood seventies American cinema really well, which is yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I, I only bring up city on fire because that's the movie that reservoir dogs gets compared to the most. And Obviously. if you, yeah, if you're going to go down that logic and say, Hey, I don't think it's a ripoff, but he understood what made that Chow fat movie so good and said, I want to retell that story, but do it in a different perspective. But he maintained the elements um, of, of what the ingredients were for those characters and even the setup and the scenarios. Yeah, well, he took a chunk of city on fire yeah. and he liked and it exacerbated that. Yeah, I want to concentrate on this because that that's where some, you know, that's a successful part of that story. Let mm-hmm. me expand upon it. And then turned it into a 70s heist film, yeah, in a way, with a with a shocking moment that nobody forgets. And uh it was really smart. I mean, it was really smart and you know, that's the reason why he is who he is. Yeah, and I, but I, then I, again, when you're you're no 1992 and you're Brad seeing that film for the first time, Brad Stir yeah uh you know you don't have any knowledge of that stuff so you're going into this thing you're thinking it's wholly original but even when you go back to see city on fire you see the inspiration but like you said troy it's taking what works expanding upon it and not just calling not just calling it out for the sake of calling it out yeah no I, i i think that's a problem sometimes that people get into it is they want to reference something from a film or even steal a scene or, or recreate or something of that nature. But the reason why that scene is ineffective is they don't understand the context of what was working. Um, that was helping that scene out or that storyline. Right. The thing is films from filmmakers who love movies should make you, after you watch that film, want to pursue more movies. Yes, I, I think uh, this one does. Yeah, yeah, this one does a hundred percent. Tarantino's done that to me. Martin Scorsese's done that to me. Francis Ford Coppola's done that to me. The list is endless. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson's done that to me. He's made me go back and look at Robert Downey Senior films, films I, I didn't, I never liked originally, but I've come to appreciate more because of Paul Thomas Anderson. It's 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 amazing to me that people rag on guys who do that when. They're trying to, in my opinion, they're trying to show appreciation for the form. 
And I, f- I find it amazing when people, you know, give him hell for that. And to me, that's what Fred Decker does. He he shows appreciation for the form, maybe lesser so in some of his writing gigs and whatnot. But when I finished watching this film when I was younger, I wanted more sci-fi horror type films. I wanted more films like that. And of course, I had seen The Thing by then and stuff like that. But man, that was that was my genre when I was growing up was sci-fi horror. I mean, that was it, man. I mean, it mixed everything I loved about star Wars with everything I loved about Halloween and Friday the 13th. And now you got Fred Decker coming along and he's throwing zombies into the mix and, and you know, nature run amok horror in a way. Cause these things are these parasitic creatures. It was just, it was just this wonderful moment of, you know, a young film fan kind of blossoming into the film fan that I've become. Yeah. And so but I, it- synonymous with that with me you know but you can see like inspiration from like invasion of the body snatchers but that meets like a zombie film and and but you can see that inspiration (laughs) but there's a a different twist on it as well um yeah i mean i I think he's showing like inspiration from the 1950s it's i think there's a reason why we go back to 1959 in this film they're gonna call back to those 50s sci-fi films like you know forbidden planet and war of the worlds and i think from another world and all that stuff in that documentary there's a gentleman who says you know fred was the kind of kid who would be watching genre movies at 3 30 on tv on a saturday afternoon yeah I, i was that kid so i know i mean i know what that's like i mean you know you're you're trying to absorb as much of that stuff as you can and and uh it kind of comes through and that's why that's why i say for me it's just kind of sad that he's never really you know he had that one two three um and they were all bombs um they basically struck out yeah he struck out well but but he made quality work he i mean no 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 he he, he'll forever be remembered that that's never going to go away but he didn't make money for the studio true Correct. Well, that see, that's weird because I would I would love if we had more time and didn't have uh, day jobs and access to data to go back with these guys in the 80s and say, hey, let's really crunch the numbers. Because if you think about it, Matt Damon's talked about this all the time, famously about the DVD market. Right. Yep. But if you talk about these studios who would invest and in, and I think uh, during the break, we had kind of found out there there could be some budget figures for this film. Would you say, Brad? Five million, which allegedly I find five million. To be, yeah, because Monster Squad was—I uh, forget what Monster Squad was, but um, well, let's yeah, say five million seems like a lot. Yeah, that does. But let's let's split the difference, right, and say two and a half. Let's say it costs two and a half million dollars. At the end okay, of the sorry. day, so Monster Squad costs fourteen, so maybe five is correct. Okay, um, if if it was five million dollars and it didn't even make a million back on theatrical. But how many times did this thing um, get released, rented? Uh, some of these films in the 80s, I mean, there, there's a reason why Monster Squad's getting a 4K edition and another release. People buy this stuff. Um, people rent these things. There's a whole another generation discovering it. And so Decker's movies probably, at the end of the day, uh, has brought in a lot of money to the studio. But it, you know, maybe it was one of those things. Probably, but it's got about. a much longer tail. It does absolutely. Don't don't disagree with that. Um, yeah. And and I'll say this. I mean, for anybody who hasn't seen the film, Brad kind of described the beginning of um, the film. Opens with a couple of naked dwarf space aliens chasing another naked dwarf space alien with a canister shooting at him. 
Um, and calling him a bitch. It's so awesome. Yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> Uh, yeah. shotguns blasting and everything else with these, these naked dwarf aliens. And then you transition to the fifties and it's all black and white photography, ax murder on the loose with college kids. Uh, I, I think you'll know in the first 10 minutes, if you're going to enjoy the, the film. But what I, what I love about this film is Decker. If you look at his filmography and go, okay, he had all these box office bombs, but his legacy lives on with people discovering it after the fact. Um, he very much reminds me of Ed Wood in that, but he's putting out better product. And I've always felt the, the one of the reasons why I love night of the creep so much is this is just a fancier, gorier version of plan nine from out of space, from outer space. And instead of ray guns, reanimating the dead, you get space slugs. And there's mm. actually a ton of references to plan nine from outer space in this right in the beginning one of the girls on the phone in the fifties is talking about, Hey, did, did you see that plan nine from outer space film? And, yeah. um, even when the ax murderer is coming up from the floor, you've got Tor Johnson on the television in the background coming up from the grave. And so I, I really think Fred Decker just went, I really like plan nine from outer space and I want to make an eighties version of it. And that's exactly what we got with Night of the Creeps while he's throwing in all of these other references to, you know, classic science fiction horror, everything you guys mentioned. Um, and, and I love the fact that he leans into the really kind of goofy traditional horror tropes. You get the kids investigating a meteor crash. You get a coroner always eating a sandwich over a corpse, which I feel like happened in the eighties all the time. Kids investigating the meteor. That's blob, right? Yeah. Um, you get cats jumping out at a character and giving a jump scare, which is in all the classic horror films, right? Um, people just oblivious to dead people walking around, um, (laughs) which feels like something right out of those, those 50 schlocky films. And then Mm. you get the gratuitous female shower scenes, which was, uh, going to be an eighties thing, right? tracking shot at that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's cool about this film is you get all of that, but you get a couple of scenes. You guys have mentioned this already that are very nuanced and feel, um, like some, I I don't know, some, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it, but it, it really takes this goofy atmosphere and puts, puts it on pause for a second and says, let's give some weight to the characters and, and let you remember, you know, make these characters memorable. So you mentioned the sequence about him going down, uh, JC going down and dying in the basement after he learns he's got slugs. I actually think yep. the scene before that is kind of a gut punch when Chris is listening to the tape recorder. The tape recorder? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really yeah. creepy, but it's really sad at the same time. And then you get Ray Cameron, so the Tom Atkins character, uh, before he kind of um, comes in to save the day. He's trying to commit suicide in his home after you realize that he uh, tried to kill the ax murder and bury, you know, that whole evidence mm-hmm. and yep. he's missing his sweetheart. And he's like, well, I'm just going to end things by turning the oven on. Um, yep. there, there's these two scenes that all of a sudden you would think that in a movie like this, they would feel out of place from a tonal shift, but they actually add some gravitas to the characters within the film and get you to care about them a little bit more. And, uh, you know, Hey, I, I don't want these guys to die because I, I feel for him a little bit. So I, I think it's a much better, more competent version of plan nine from outer space. I don't know if it's as much fun cause I love plan nine from outer space. 
Um, well, that's an interesting topic right there alone, right? I mean, yeah. I remember being a kid and everybody saying Plan 9 from Outer Space is the worst movie ever made. And I remember finally seeing Plan 9 from Outer Space to being like, this is not the worst movie ever made. I've seen so much more oh, worse absolutely. than Plan 9 from I, I love that film. I unabashedly love that film. 100%. I mean, I know it's not it's not a good film. I mean, well, it's not a great film. But True. it's not a it's not the world's worst film. There there is it I mean it truly no, is Love that on the Leash. Can, Love on a Leash is the worst film. <laughs> I can think of at least the last three months of you know, <laughs> they're at least worse than <laughs> I agree. There there is there is an incompetency, obviously, to plan nine from outer space, but there is such earnestness and uh yeah, that's I don't know what it is. It's that it's that secret ingredient that makes that movie so rewatchable. It's the same thing with me with Fred Decker. That there's honesty in the filmmaking. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. There's never a moment that I feel is fake, and I never feel it's a wink. I never don't. I never do feel that way. Maybe some. Maybe my son would. Maybe he would now. But, and maybe that's just a generational shift. You know what I mean? But I never felt that with Fred Decker's films. With neither one. I, I can't say RoboCop three is a total. It's it's a it's something else completely, but Monster Squad and and Neither Creeps. I've never felt like once that he was winking at me. Anymore. Does that? Yeah. Do we know why he had to do? Because RoboCop three just stands out in his. It's so different. I wonder if he kind of got put into director jail I, I think we got to talk about that film because to, to sammy's point i know there's a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes and i wonder if this is one of those um he was a director for hire at the last minute because of all the stuff that frank, was happening i think frank miller wrote the script too and he I think did. it's a, a frank lot. miller yeah. yeah yeah i think there was a lot of disagreements between frank miller and fred decker sure well but i mean fred decker to me um you know we we go on and on about monster squad in this one which i'm sure we'll talk about monster squad at some point it's so weird to talk about a horror film, especially this one that has some gratuitous violent moments to it and some sort of gushy gory uh, stuff going on, but yet ends up having this charisma and charm that you don't find in most films. Like it's very yeah. endearing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a horror movie to the bone, but it's also, in my opinion, it's an American classic. I would second that a hundred percent. I would like, you know, like we've done shopping mall. We've done, Halloween three, no night of the creeps. Like if you put those three films on with me in one evening, I am having a fantastic night. Oh, absolutely. All all three of those films are infinitely rewatchable. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that, that brings up something that I ran across. Um, and it was an article from far out magazine from 2022 because I, you, you mentioned those movies and I'm like, okay, what was the best decade of horror films? And it's really interesting. If you type that into Google, there's a, there's a really interesting debate going on, but here's this article. It took a look at things from the 1960s to 2010. That was the space it concentrated on. And so it went through each decade and it said, okay, here are the heavy hitters for each decade and what the sixties were trying to do versus the seventies, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanted to read this and see if you guys agree with it. So this is towards the end of the article. To conclude, horror developments over these six decades are remarkable, managing to categorize and define each era effortlessly. And marking out the best, the 2000s and 2010s don't put up much of a fight. The preceding decades in horror are too strong. The 1960s and 70s were the scariest due to their slow-burning tension. 
They respected and celebrated the origins of horror stories the most. However, that slow burn factor doesn't equate to the same thrilling entertainment that the 1980s provided. The 80s horror masterpieces are the most eventful, artistic, and iconic, truly the greatest decade in the history of horror cinema. Would, would you guys agree with that? Hmm. <laughs> I know that's a, that's a bomb to drop on you to ask that question. I'll go first. Um, I find the eighties. I, I obviously have uh, a bias towards them because that's when I really discovered movies, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Just growing up in that age. And I will say the thing I appreciate, appreciate about the eighties for me, and I know this is coming from a personal perspective is I found more movies in the eighties that pushed me to discover more movies in previous decades. So when I look at this film, it's like, oh, well, let me go through all of these films that it's referencing or borrowing from. And then all of a sudden it opened up the doors for other things for me to look at. The thing's a great yeah. example. I love John Carpenter's The Thing, but it made me go back and uh, look at the original. So there, there's something about, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing is a great example. There are these movies from the 80s that could push the boundaries of special effects in filmmaking but also push people into checking out other films that came before it. And I, I can't sit here and say, okay, the seventies were no slouch. I mean, it got to me, the seventies provided the scariest movie I've ever seen. We can disagree on this, but it's the exorcist, but it also produced the heavy hitters like Texas chainsaw massacre, Halloween. I mean, the template for, for modern horror films still to this day, but the eighties, still has this feel that it took everything that was created in the sixties and seventies and said, okay, we're going to move some of the, the scares like the haunting, et cetera, to the forefront and use the special effects and really push that and show you things you've never seen before, but still maintain the quality of filmmaking. Um, and while other decades, even after the eighties have had some great, great horror films, even, even today, I still think there are some good horror films being made. I I would kind of agree with this, that the 80s, if you holistically look at all the movies that came out of that decade to prior decades, it, it probably is the best decade. I, I would agree the 80s. I think for me, it's definitely the decade that I have gone back to the most. And I think it maybe pushed the genre forward more so than other decades. Well, I don't know. You, you say that, and then it's like you feel like you're diminishing the stuff that yeah, came before. Yeah, and you and can't you can't that. deny like the '60s had The Haunting or Rosemary's Baby or stuff. I mean, yeah, every decade has these movies that just um, redefine I, the genre. But to, to me, there's something about the '80s that just uh, it's really hard to replicate. And there's and I think so it's many. the practical effects. If you want to be perfectly honest with you, I think that's part of it for me. I think Brad hits it on the head right there. I think the eighties is the glory year of practice, the glory decade of practical effect. Yeah. And I think that's the game changer. And for me, the very beginning of the eighties is like boom, boom, boom. I mean, it's like, it's hitting on all cylinders. You have Friday 13th, you got American werewolf in London, which to me is still is, and will always be my favorite horror film of all time. But, uh, but it does a great job, but that's another example of doing a great job of just saying it's going to push the boundaries of filmmaking and, and give you something you've never seen before, tell an amazing story, 
but it's also going to lead you to the universal um, yeah, because monster there's, film. There's nothing, yeah, there's nothing original in American no, Werewolf. In absolutely not. It's just, it's just a werewolf movie. Yeah, there's, there's second, it's just the basic tropes of a werewolf movie. It's all it is. Yeah, there's something about the '80s that I, I if somebody said, "Look, there's nothing that original that came out of the '80s," I'd be like, "Yeah, okay," but there's something about the filmmaking there that made it feel original, but at the same time pushed me to all these other films that I discovered as a result of watching movies in the '80s. Something great about the early 80s horror films, too, is they have very 70s type endings. Yes. Think about the ending of American World of London. Think about even the ending of Friday the 13th, the original. Oh, yeah. They These endings that kind of end with either sadness or a question mark. They don't give you, they don't wrap everything up in a bow uh, like so many horror films do now. But I got to go with the 80s, too. I think Brad hit it on the head. I think it's the practical effects. That is the golden age of the practical effect. Yep. And the 70s is great. Nobody can deny the 70s. Uh, some of the films that we're talking about there, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, uh, well, Rosemary's Baby 68, so that don't count, but The Exorcist, even even though I don't find The Exorcist as scary as you guys do, I still appreciate the film and what it did, mostly for the fact that it just had balls, <laughs> like True. incredible balls, <laughs> uh, you know, for especially for a major studio release. I'm like, I still can't figure out how they got that, how they made that work, but but that was the seventies too. Seventies was all about balls. It was about taking risk. Yeah. And, uh, the eighties kind of took those risks and they start, they eventually started to, you can see in the eighties where things are starting to get more safe as it goes along, but those early eighties, especially with Sam Raimi and folks like that. I mean, there's, these are reanimator. I mean, God, think about the films in the eighties. Think about the movies in there. Oh, I know. I, I Like I said, I would say 80s as a whole from start even up to 89 is pretty strong across the board. Um, yeah, Horror-wise, yes. Horror-wise, yes. Action-wise, yes. Drama-wise, I don't know. Yeah. But the 80s, I mean, it, it's great. Yeah, the 80s. Are, I know Tarantino recently came under fire for saying he hated the 80s, but, you know, even he can be wrong. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, hey, if anybody is listening um, and they have a different opinion, I, I would pose the question to to our listeners to maybe send in some email. Like, what what is the best decade for horror movies? Plead your case. I think all three of us are voting for the 80s. If you disagree, we would love to hear a different take on it. Not saying you're wrong. I, I just I'm, I'm trying to think of a different way to view this that would dethrone, in my opinion, the output that the 80s had. But uh, we would love to hear from everybody. Any, do you guys have any other final thoughts on Night of the Creeps? Uh, I do not. I, I think it's as close to perfect of a B-movie as you can get. Yeah, it, it's probably the, for me, one of the quintessential B-movies. It's the Warriors 2 of B-movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's I, a 10 out of 10. It's a 10 out of 10. Um, an 8 out of 10. Shut up. Uh, I, I just want <laughs> mention two things because we, we really brought this up. There is a great cameo in, in the movie. And it happens at the police station when they're trying to get a flamethrower. So you get the the legendary Dick Smith coming out. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it it's a great um, addition to a film that is already filled with a bunch of like uh, just classic horror sci fi tropes. And then the other thing I want to mention, um, I don't know why I blame you, Bradster, only because you were you were the villain this week. <laughs> this is the second week in a row I've had to endure cat trauma. And I, oh, I didn't yes. appreciate it. Um, <laughs> so cat, cat and dog trauma in this one. Cat and dog trauma. So uh, pet the, owners uh, beware. 
I want to make sure to mention uh, this film also uh, features a pretty beefy role from uh, cult actor Robert Kerman, who was in uh, pornography films and in Cannibal Holocaust, and oddly was the tugboat captain in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, but somehow ended up in big movies and pornography and some of the worst smut ever made. I don't know how the guy pulled it off, but he did. He He's in all kinds of movies. He's one of the cops in the car that gets out when they confront the the uh, dummy kind of uh, zombie in the alleyway. Oh, okay. He's the one. He's one of the. He's the white cop sitting on the passenger side. Oh, wait, sorry. Which white cop? Because I thought they were all. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a couple African American cops in this. Uh, there's there's two. I think there's two. <laughs> uh, this also has this also has a trope that I can't stand in movies, which is the eating corner. Oh, yeah. We mentioned the, the corner yeah. eating the sandwiches over the corpses. At least, yeah, look, here's the other thing I like about the 80s. They they hadn't invented this trope that drives me nuts every time I see it, which is here's your empty coffee cup filled with coffee, and you got to act like you're drinking coffee. But it's so obvious you're not drinking anything. I hate that. Yeah, um, because they're not sipping it. They're gulping it, right? Yeah, it's so stupid. Um, <laughs> okay, Sammy, is Night of the Creeps a bomb? No, it's not a bomb. Actually, I think out of all the films you guys have covered, this is close to like one of the best. Oh, okay, that's a wow. bold okay. statement, man. Okay, Bradster. Yeah. I mean, I think it's up there. I mean, I think it's up there. Days of Heaven or Heaven's Gate, I should say, not Days of Heaven. Heaven's Gate, Night of Creeps. Better than Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, is there anything really kind of better than Big Trouble in Little China in no, a way? No, not really. We've no. often said on our podcast, it's the it's the meeting of Will and me. Yeah, that is the film that brings us together. It's a, it's an intimidating film to talk about without just sitting there and going, remember this part, how cool it was? Yeah, that was cool. We, we, we never reviewed it. <laughs> you I, got don't to, know, I don't know if we ever will. You got to. It's fun. It'd probably, probably be an 8 out of 10. Shut up. Oh, God. God dang it. Um, Bradster, let's yes, uh, let's not have Sammy give any more ratings. Um, is not, this is not, <laughs> a, not a bomb. Trip. Not a bomb. Okay. Not even close. I agree with you. 1,000%. 10 out of 10. There you go. Real quick, we don't have a lot of listener feedback, but I did I did want to acknowledge something. So um, I think this has to do with next week's film. Do you want to announce next week's film? Yeah, so we are going to do 1992's slasher film, not Mr. Giggles, because he went to uh, medical school, Dr. Giggles. Dr. <laughs> Giggles, MD. Uh, so we, we had a good friend, Randy, um, wow. email us and give us, I, I didn't even know these existed, but um, got us copies of the Dark Horse comics uh, of the oh, film. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a two Doctor Giggles yep. comic books. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's what he I, gave I us. Think, I'm assuming. I think I have those. Yeah, I think I have those. I think I have those as well. Okay. Well, we're gonna try and read those before uh, we watch this film and talk about it. I will be back for Doctor Giggles. I will not be rereading the comics. Oh, they're that good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a novelization, man? I, I, for whatever reason, that Halloween uh, ends book that Jose uh, got us. I'm almost done with it, and now I'm on this big kick of wanting. It documents to read it. his his time in his residency. Yeah, it, it That's novel- what the novelization does. Novelizations are novelizations are a great wormhole to go down. I oh, mean, it is. It's an amazing, it's an amazing world. I I agree, uh, Brad. If anybody wants to send any feedback to us. And uh, again, I would love to hear anybody make a counter argument to the greatest horror decade out there. Um, how do they get hold of us? 
Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com. Or you can head over to notabombpodcast, hit the contact us button, and leave us a suggestion there. Or let us know what the best decade of horror is. Or, Troy, you can go on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yes. Sammy, you're doing horror movies, too, over at The Gentleman's Guide. Uh, you released a doozy of a film this week. You want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So as you're listening to this, our episode on uh, 1982 or 83 is the mausoleum. Um, the mausoleum. Mausoleum is out. Which is, uh, yeah, if you haven't ever seen Mausoleum, you need to see Mausoleum. It's uh, <laughs> it's bonkers. That's the word I was about ready to use, bonkers. <laughs> Belongs in the succubus genre. And uh, that's a fun genre, especially in the 80s when there was lacks, there was a serious lack of good taste. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a nice Blu-ray out of it now, too, I think. Yeah, and uh, the golden era of special effects. Uh, Beekler did the effects for that. Uh, John oh, Beekler. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Listen to the episode. Check out Mausoleum. Uh, who else should they check out, Brad? Yeah, we have Watch Skip Plus, The VHS Files, Night of the Living Podcast, The Backlook Cinema Podcast, Mixtape Podcast, uh, Raiders of the Podcast, and check out our buddy John's YouTube uh, channel. And now for something a little bit different. Awesome. Uh, I think I think that's all the housekeeping, right? I think so. Okay. Well, Sammy, as always, I know you're super busy. We can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk spooky movies with us. Can't wait to have you back next week, too. We love it. Yeah, Anytime. I love it. Folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode. Come back next week when uh, we talk about the state of the medical industry and specifically one Dr. Giggles, M.D., and uh, we'll see how it holds up in the uh, in the slasher genre. So uh, come back. We'll see you then. Don't lose your head. <laughs> <laughs>